It's a wonderful issue. It breaks down the topic of natural gas, talks about importing, exporting. So if you have questions on what's happening, there's a lot of media attention around um, this clean burning fuel. So you definitely want to go to shalemag.com. That's spelled S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com. Again, that's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com. MAG.com. And remember, it's free. And did I mention for less than $80 a year, you can get a full year subscription to Shell Magazine. And again, all you have to do is visit Shale, S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com and get your subscription mailed directly to your office or home. And now it's time to bring on our editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. David, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a beautiful day in Texas. It is. The weather is just getting amazing. And I really love how we are now on this uh, daylight savings time. And so we have a lot more daylight. It's a really wonderful thing. So, David, let's jump into uh, one of our favorite uh, partners and uh, a that we love very much is the Port of Corpus Christi, seeing so many wonderful things going on uh, in that area. And of course, uh, the port has had a lot of good news. So let's talk about that. Um, Tell me about the appeals court decision um, and what they're celebrating, the Port of Corpus Christi. Well, they they had a good uh, court decision or a reversal from the Court of Appeals uh, here in Texas here uh, this past week. The week before, the Court of Appeals had issued a stay against uh, the Port Commission being able to vote on approving a 50-year lease with Lone Star Ports uh, related to their Harbor Island facility where they, they were planning to build a, uh, a super tanker uh, loading facility there at Harbor Island. And uh, the court had stepped in and issued a stay order, but just a week later on March 26th, they lifted that stay. So now... Now the Port Commission is going to be able to approve that 50-year lease with Lone Star Ports and get that project moving again. So, you know, there was some fear that this might be a long delay in, in that project, but, but it turned out to be just a week, and now they're able to move forward. Is there anything else that could possibly get in their way? I mean, I guess anything could happen, but how? what is the likelihood, do you think, of this just now continuing to sail through? Um, it's much needed. We do definitely need infrastructure um, and the port just has a stellar reputation. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I mean, it's like you say, there's a lot of different things that could happen, I guess. And you never know about litigation that might be filed in the future uh, for various reasons, whether they're founded or unfounded. But uh, at least right now, the coast is clear and they're able to move forward. And But it's a major, big, you know, it's a big undertaking, a major project and and. Uh, those kinds of things, big enterprises like that, uh, there's all sorts of potential for delay. But uh, at least right now, they're able to move forward and uh, the Corps of Engineers will be able to get in there and start deepening uh, uh, the intercoastal canal to make that thing capable of landing these big uh, VLCC super tankers. Very good. Uh, So switching gears just a little bit, uh, let's talk about a new study released by Platts Analytics. And it's stating that Texas is going to need an additional 10,000 miles of new pipeline, and it needs to be constructed by 2050. That's to move all of our oil and gas to market. That sounds like a whole lot of pipeline. Uh, Put this into perspective for us. That is a lot of pipeline. That's a lot of miles of pipe uh, that need to go into the ground. And that's you know, it's a study that uh, uh, that's what will be required to fully maximize 
Texas's production potential of oil and natural gas over the next 30 years. Now, that's dependent on a lot of things. It's dependent on demand remaining strong for both oil and natural gas, and right now that looks pretty likely to happen. Uh, it, it's you know it's it's based on solar and wind not coming in and disrupting the deployment of more and more natural gas in the power generating sector. And it's based on an assumption that the price for natural gas isn't going to skyrocket upwards and uh, kill demand in the manufacturing and fertilizer sectors, you know, that use a lot of natural gas. But but all of those things being equal and, you know, based on those assumptions, you know, Texas is going to be the center of oil and gas production in the United States for the coming decades. And uh, to get that uh, oil and natural gas to market, uh, you have to have pipelines. And that's um, it, a lot of pipe. But to put it in perspective, right now, uh, today, we have more than well over 3,000 miles of pipe going into the ground in Texas just to bring oil and gas out of the Permian Basin right now. Uh, and that doesn't include other pipeline expansions and new construction going on in other parts of the state. So Texas at any given time has a very significant amount of pipeline construction that's ongoing in its portfolio anyway. So it, 10,000 miles of pipe does sound like a lot of pipe, but you're talking about over a span of 30 years. And when you factor that in, you know, it's it's kind of just really slightly above what's normally happening in Texas anyway. Yep, and interesting. Now let's talk our favorite topic, yours and mine. We're always talking about oil prices. They go up, they <laughs> yeah. go down. Now WTI price was sitting at $44 um, back in January, and you predicted that it would strengthen through the first three months of this year, and that you predicted it would probably get somewhere around $60 a barrel. And that's almost happened uh, as of right now. So what crystal ball are you using that allows you to really be able to see and guess these numbers pretty accurately uh, for the most part? What, what I like to tell people is one advantage of getting old uh, is that you you experience a lot. I'm like that guy in the farmer's commercial where we we know a lot. We've seen we've it seen all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I've seen a lot over the years and kind of understand what does and doesn't impact the price of oil and you know the other part of it is just being able to look at uh, how the domestic industry is developing over time and and what drives that development here in the US industry and uh, you know it's it's there's nothing magic to it it's just uh, having the time to spend analyzing it and, and looking to what's happened but yeah it's uh, it's getting up there you know it's at that $60 mark uh, this week and uh, that's good that's a healthy price for everybody uh, I think over the course of the rest of the year it's probably going to kind of linger there maybe continue to rise a little bit but uh, just like last year so much of it depends on what OPEC and Saudi Arabia do in Russia uh, and so they'll be meeting in the fall to uh, determine whether or not to continue their agreement to curtail their own exports and uh, we'll see how that goes you know if they if they get to the point where they don't want to sustain those cuts anymore then you know we're, we're going to have a completely different situation so but right now everything's looking pretty good for the industry and it's really booming last question david tell me about the latest issue of shell magazine we have you have a new one out what's going on with it 
Yeah, we do. It's uh, focused on natural gas. Uh, the cover story is uh, kind of the history of, of how the natural gas market in the United States supply and demand has developed uh, during the course of the first 19 years of this century. And uh, I, I really enjoyed writing that. I've, I've been involved in that throughout, you know, in, in various roles in the industry. And uh, having seen it all developed, it was kind of a fun story to write. Uh, I hope everybody We'll take the time uh, to go read that and, and pick up the magazine. It's it's a really outstanding issue with a lot of a lot of good content in it. I, I hope everybody will take the time to go to shellmag.com and, and take a look. And you know, David, speaking of the latest issue of Shell Magazine, anyone who wants a subscription can easily just go to Shell Mag, order it online. We're pretty there. It's pretty inexpensive compared to um, other magazines that are out there for a really good, easy read. Um, they should go and, and visit the, the website and, and grab themselves a hard copy. But I also wanted to mention, you guys have some new things coming onto the magazine. You guys are going to focus a lot more in the 2019 on global topics and what this means uh, for the United States. So um, this might help in an area where it's so complicated, oil and gas, um, and how uh, what happens globally really affects us here in the United States, too. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing some of those articles coming out on a more of a global picture in Shell, too, in Shell Magazine as well. Yeah, me too. That's going to be a lot of fun to, to kind of refocus on these international issues because everything we do in Texas, we talk about Texas being the center of the U.S. industry, but everything that happens here happens, you know, impacts. It's a global market. So everything we do here reverberates all over the world, and it's important to bring all that into perspective. Great. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. And our guest today is Jeff Bland, who is a business development engineer with Agreco. So, Jeff, welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Hi. Hi. Well, I'm really excited to have Agreco back on. We haven't had you all back on since last year. And so I'm excited to catch up with you guys because there's a lot of great things that you guys have been doing in in the oil and gas sector. But um, let's begin with a little bit uh, of your background. Um, I, I do detect you have a uh, accent. Um, and so uh, tell me a little bit about where you're from. Uh, and then we'll go into Agreco and how long have you been with Agreco? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm from uh, Glasgow, Scotland. Um, I've I've been with Agreco for about eleven years now. Um, I started off as one of the lead engineers developing equipment for uh, for uh, like for actual manufacture. So all of the generators and pieces of equipment that we currently use as rental assets. And um, I, I grew up in Scotland. I, I, I've worked in probably about seventy countries across the world. Either. Uh, previous career moves or, or with this company. And um, yeah, great to be on the show today. Excellent. Well, so you have been around uh, the world uh, with Agreco. So so for some of our listeners who are not familiar with Agreco, uh, it's a huge brand. It's a global company. Um, and you guys do power generation. But go a little deeper into Agreco. What is the company itself for any listeners who are not familiar with the company? Well, I, th- I think the key thing to, to understand about what we do is it's it's not necessarily like rental generators. We we are solution providers more than more than anything. Um, we do turnkey projects, anything from 
you know, 60 kilowatts to uh, all the way up to, you know, three, 400 megawatt uh, applications. Um, we do temperature control. We do uh, um, oil-free air. Um, we have um, full in-house engineering and we basically can solve the problems that the, the customers' businesses are facing. So that that's generally, we, we use our assets, which, uh, which we manufacture ourselves actually in Scotland to, uh, to provide really unique solutions that save a lot of money or solve very complex uh, problems. Well, you know, most com- most individuals and, and a lot of people are familiar with Agreco as they see the, these generators that have the Agreco name on them. But uh, I'm glad you kind of explained Agreco is such a larger company and it is all over the world and it is helping in so many different ways, not just in power, but coming up with, with solutions. So that's what I want to switch gears to and talk about the custom design, uh, this install job, if you will, on a project um, or an application that you guys were using it was actually using the SCR and an SCADA which is a lot of letters in there um, which you had not utilized before in NAM. so first of all give me an overview and how um, are you utilizing them to uh, come up with solutions well uh, I, I guess just to kind of clarify so an SCR is a selective catalyst reduction system and uh, SCADA is basically a communications uh, network which allows you to uh, commu- you know, allow all your pieces of kit to communicate together and uh, you know, essentially automate the, the whole system from a you know, hardwired position. So, um, I mean, we, we've just recently installed, it's a, um, it's a job which uh, at the final install is looking to be about 40 megawatts of power um, which, if if you've operated in in West Texas, generally um, air permits anywhere in the states, to be honest, can can start to become a limit. And um, one advantage we've always had as a company is that we're a temporary solution, which means all of our assets are, up to a year are um, not not necessarily required to be uh, measured. So the the emissions outputs um, are covered by the OEM manufacturer uh, capabilities. So all of our engines are badged to allow us to operate. Um, anything more than a year, you typically have to start measuring and reporting uh, the the uh, emissions outputs. Um, the the lower you can get the emissions from your pieces of kit, essentially the more pieces of kit you can have on site. So if your operation involves many uh, many emission sources, like you know for example compressors or engines or anything like that, then um, you know, the, the, the lower you can keep uh, those items, the, the more business you can do, the larger your project can be. So, um, so for the, the project that, that you're talking about, we, we actually employed, uh, we, we actually came up with a, a design for, it's a natural gas powered engine. Um, these engines, we can run on anything from straight well gas uh, all the way to, to clean, uh, clean gas. And uh, we can tune the emissions to fairly low levels. It's probably about um, about an eighth of the the emissions that you would get from a diesel unit. But um, but what we we actually employed on this project was to put SCRs, which uh, essentially clean up all of the the residual NOx out of the the engine. And we actually reduced from that that already quite low number. We reduced it by a further ninety five percent. 
per engine, which means that essentially we we're providing a solution which is you know only given you know maybe five percent of the the emissions out. I mean it's it's virtually as clean as uh, you know aside from the the CO uh, CO two um, which uh, which is unavoidable from a combustion process. All of the nasties which are in the the gas are removed, and it, it's virtually as clean as uh, clean air at that that stage. So um so it's been a it, it's basically been a, a a big advantage in terms of achieving the air permit without having to move into you know um, the, the the higher levels of uh, Title Five or or any of those other aspects which you know you know add a lot of length of time to the the permit generation. Right. Well, Jeff, um, when we return from break, I want to get back into the topic of you were talking about these applications that are being created as a solution for the oil and gas industry. I guess if you follow the oil and gas industry like we do in the oil patch, um, you you kind of understand that um, trying to get um, a big site up and running can take time with with that power. And then, of course, as it's as it's powering up, um, there's a lot of different um, situations that come into play that an operator um, has to deal with as well. And and so some of the things that you guys are doing are not only uh, providing that power, but also creating a better environmental impact for them as well. When we return, we'll get back on the subject of air admissions. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Agreco has been powering the Permian Basin for over 10 years, supporting Permian producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. Agreco supports power systems as small as a single 200 kilowatt to as large as a 50 megawatt power plant. So when your utility power is delayed, call on Agreco to engineer a diesel, natural gas, or battery solution to fit your needs. We have immediate availability right here in the Permian Basin. Call 1-800-AGRECO or online agreco.com. Agreco has been powering the Permian Basin for over 10 years, supporting Permian producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. Agreco supports power systems as small as a single 200 kilowatt to as large as a 50 megawatt power plant. So when your utility power is delayed, call on Agreco to engineer a diesel, natural gas, or battery solution to fit your needs. We have immediate availability right here in the Permian Basin. Call 1-800-AGRECO or online agreco.com. We're back. You're listening to In the Well Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Jeff Bland, who is the business development engineer for Agreco, a global company. Um, and Jeff, before the break, you were briefly discussing a custom design that you guys had created. But I want to back up a little bit because you guys are really focusing on the Midland area. Well, you guys are a global company, but there's a lot of great things that are happening in Midland. And you guys are a part of it because of the fact that there are so many obstacles in dealing in a rural area like the West Texas Permian Basin area. And um, I think the important thing to, to talk about is how... Agreco has been kind of leading the way, if you will, in these custom designs to really help utilize um, and help the oil fields utilize a more efficient way uh, through y'all's technology. So let's back up again and just kind of uh, help me to understand how you guys uh, developed the technology 
um, with this SCR? What was the solution for these companies? Break it back down for me. Well, I mean, I would I would say just first of all, the 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 key reason that we are actually playing so hard in that area at the moment is uh, essentially nobody wants to have to have um, a, a you know a generation package on their facility. It's it's not necessarily what what people want to spend their money on, but the challenge has been the utility in the area has been uh, been such that you know essentially the the, the loss of business, which um, is being caused by these you know brownouts or blackouts on the on the grid um mean that we, we can actually provide a huge amount of extra revenue um for our customers by providing a, a solution that is either there as a backup to the utility or actually taking over altogether. I mean we have we have uh, actively taken people off the grid because for them it makes more business sense to do that. Um, you know we'll provide a, a microgrid solution which is basically feeding uh, you know, we can hook in anywhere on that network and then we can, you know, generate into that um, to, to basically take a customer off. And the way we the way we do that uh, reliably and um, the reason we get such good feedback is because we, we tend to do it a little bit like Lego blocks. You know, we, we add units together with redundancy. Um, you know, when a unit needs serviced, there's no loss of power. You know, we we uh, you know we basically have a package which is very compact. It's we can deploy it in you know a matter of you know days or weeks, um, and you know provide you know 10, 20 megawatts without you know without skipping a beat. Um, so I mean these these applications are not new to us. We we do it all over the world. Uh, we've made uh, our name in a lot of cases through. Uh, either events or you know big world disasters. So I mean, we we are jetting in when the the situation is hardest, and you know providing a solution that gets people back up and running. So the Permian's a perfect yeah, it's a perfect uh, example of where that sort of mentality meets the needs of you know the clients. And you know you you think about it though, or something that we don't think about a lot is just power as a whole you, you know everybody wakes up in the morning they think let me just flip a switch on and my lights come on uh running water access to clean running water all of these of course require energy of some sort and it's no different in the oil fills where if they're in a rural area it takes time for the utility company to come out there run lines and i guess what what i'm hearing is that has been a definite problem uh, in the oil fields and probably all over the world when we've had hurricanes or if you have a huge concert, which I've seen that too. And um, you guys are the, the, the power for this massive concert with lights and music and all, all this bunch of energy that is necessary. Um, but we don't really think about how do these things get p- that kind of power um, and I guess we just kind of assume, well, we're, you know, we're just going to call our local utility company and have this, uh, you know, we're going to tap into it and, and it doesn't quite work that way. Um, and so you guys are providing that to the energy companies, but, it, but these programs are specifically being designed to where it's, it's a little bit more in depth than that. It, you guys are actually helping with error admissions as well. And, um, so it's like, 
it isn't just filling the needs of what a company needs for their energy resources, but it's also helping them when we we understand how much regulation is required from them for flaring and stuff like that. When we return from break, I want to get back on the topic of the admissions and, and the product, how it's helping in that area as well. Uh, you're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. The Texas Alliance of Energy Producers has a rich and commanding history of fighting for the independent oil and gas industry. The Texas Alliance became a statewide organization in 2000 with the merger of two of the oldest oil and gas associations in the nation, the North Texas Oil and Gas Association and the West Central Texas Oil and Gas Association. Today, with more than 2,600 members, the Texas Alliance is the largest statewide association in the country serving independent energy producers and associated industries. Through our efforts in Washington, D.C., and Austin, the Texas Alliance is focused on a better business climate for you. The Texas Alliance has a staff consisting of highly experienced senior staff and supporting consultants serving our membership. Offices are located in Austin and Wichita Falls. Become a member today by visiting texasalliance.org or email us texasalliance at texasalliance.org. Hi, this is Kim Bilotto, host of In the Oil Patch Radio Show, starting every second Saturday of the month at 2 p.m. We will have a live call-in show in which John Tatera, the president of Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, will be joining me in studio to answer all your questions. So be sure to take advantage of getting your most important oil and gas questions answered live and join us on the show. The call-in live line is 210-526-3656. Again, the call-in live number is 210-526-3656. And we're back. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Jeff Bland, who is a business development engineer with Agreco. Um, Jeff, before the break, we were talking about how you guys are developing these custom design, uh, specifically meeting the customer's need. So one size fits all is not really Agreco's way of doing business. You go in, you guys design a plan that works for uh, the oil company, the, the operators and midstreamers, and uh, create a solution for them. I want to talk about turbines versus um, what you guys are doing, or or maybe you can tell me what is your favorite generator solution um, that helps meet the customer's need, um, because there's been a lot of different um, turbines versus generators. So give me your thoughts on that. Well, um, so I, we favor two things particularly. Uh, the first is saving the customer money, and the second is reliability of power. For us, that is the key, the, the cornerstone of every uh, system that we put together. And, um, you know, we, we've invested in a lot of technology. We've got patents for various things across the, um, across the spectrum. Um, but the... Uh, I would say that uh, the, the, the debate around turbines versus resips typically has always come up because uh, turbines take up less space 
the, for a large amount of power than a resip solution. Okay, that's that's the advantage. So if you have a very small space and you need 30 megawatts of power, maybe the turbines are the way to go. Um, however, what that does is it means if that turbine, um, you know, needs repaired or has an issue, then you lose all of your power right away. Um, and the only way you can avoid that is by having two turbines. So then you're investing in 60 megawatts of power in order to get 30 megawatts output. Um, our solution, we we tend to favor using around about a 1 to 1.5 megawatt block. We have a, a number of smaller units as well, but for our large jobs, we use a, a 1 to 1.5 meg. And then, like I mentioned before, we Lego brick them together. So it's all very customizable to the, the customer customer's uh, load. So, for example, if they need 11 uh, megawatts of power, we might put 12 generators there, each putting out a megawatt. Um, that gives them, if one of those generators goes out, then they still can pull the entire amount of power. It's very scalable. And, uh, you know, if, if, for example, the customer thinks they need 30 megawatts, but once they're up to full uh, capacity, you know, it might only be, you know, 20 megawatts. You know, they don't always know that up front. So our solution allows that scalability to happen on the fly. So we can we can remove generators, add generators as the customer needs them. And uh, with no, you know, loss of uh, loss of power, we can actually just drag and drop extra generators in and we just provide the extra connection points in the fuel manifold. And I like your visual. It's like Legos connecting them together. And, and it makes sense on a visual that, yeah, you just keep adding and adding and increasing the power without ever risking being completely uh, offline. We do the same thing uh, around uh, using the waste from the engine. So we can actually essentially reuse the waste heat that is uh, put into either the jacket water or the exhaust. And we have scalable solutions that can, again, you know, mount on the roof of the, the generators and uh, provide either steam or hot water as a byproduct. And it actually brings the efficiency of the entire package all the way up to about, you know, 60-70%, um, you know, which which is a huge fuel saving if the customer also needs those those aspects. If they have a, a hot water need or a, a steam need, um, you know, we'll do things like, you know, for for stimulation of oil sands, or we could do it for uh, you know, if it's a mine operation where they they they're doing things. We we do applications like that um across the world. So again, it's all we design it so it's scalable. And that's pretty interesting, though, Jeff, because you're 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 basically saying that y'all are taking waste of what is being generated and reusing it. And and right now, uh, obviously, when you reuse something, you're saving money no matter what. It's better for the environment. Um, and so you guys are able to take waste and utilize it to help the bottom dollar for uh, an oil company, which is. is you know, not to mention it's just recycled. Yeah. I mean, the, the the best advantage actually is that we can use a waste fuel, such as a flare gas or something which is basically just being, uh, you know, a byproduct of the oil production. Uh, we can use that gas. We can then provide the power for the, the customer. And we can also utilize the waste from the engine as well, if, uh, if it's required um, to, provide a full you know custom product 
So, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, as we mentioned at the start, uh, the, the key thing for us is to understand what the, the, the customer's needs are and we can tailor uh, to match that. Now, you know, the first part of the show, we've talked a lot about the design and how Agreco is meeting the needs of oil companies and helping them come in and be more efficient and, of course, um, being uh, way more resourceful with the dollars, which is an absolute necessity right now um, in the times that we're living with oil and gas companies. Uh, the bottom dollar really matters. But there's something that's even bigger that um, is very interesting to me, which is one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk to Agreco again is you guys are really doing a lot in the area of um, admissions. Now, you, you spoke just a second ago about flaring and how you guys can also utilize or lower an operator's flaring um, through some of the programs and application you guys are doing. You guys are really coming, you've come up with some really great ideas pertaining to how to help the operators use or flare less, which is a really good thing for the environment. And of course, it, it's just a really good thing to be doing. But we do have to take a quick break. Uh, you're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. And now it's time to bring on the editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's another beautiful day in Texas. It is. I can hardly wait till it really, really gets warm, and then it's time to go hit the lakes, beaches, and of course, uh, the Guadalupe River. So fun, 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 fun. Hey, uh, let's talk a little bit about Joe Biden. You know, he came out with his own climate plan this week, and it's on a price tag of no big deal, just five trillion dollars. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. My, my question is, does it seem like the Democrats now these days are throwing around numbers that are in the trillions and 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 it just seems like perception-wise, this is no big number. Right. Um, and what what would we get out of this kind of investment with his climate? Well, you wouldn't get anything. Uh, I mean, in, in terms of helping the climate, you would get nothing. I mean, literally nothing, uh, which is exactly what the IEA said about the Green New Deal, which would cost $19 trillion, you know. It literally would do literally nothing for, for the climate. Uh, it would do a lot for... Renewable fuels, he, he proposes $400 billion in new subsidies for wind and solar. And, you know, so it's a big giveaway program in that regard. Uh, you get a lot of new taxes. Uh, he would repeal the Trump taxing, uh, tra- Trump tax cuts and also implement a either a cap and trade program or a carbon tax. Um, you know, heavier regulations on, on, um, oil and gas emissions, but he does talk about uh, continuing to encourage uh, the production of natural gas in the United States, even as he's trying to shut down oil production, which shows he doesn't even understand how oil and gas are produced together out of the same well bores. Um, So it's just, you know, it's another thing that all of these uh, candidates are doing. Beto O'Rourke had his own plan a few weeks ago that, you know, dropped like a dud and, um, and it was seven trillion, I think. And uh, Elizabeth Warren's got a twelve trillion dollar plan, and you know, Kirsten Gillibrand probably has a plan too, but nobody cares. And it just goes on and on and on. And it's it's um, it's silly season right now. None of it's realistic. Uh, none of it has a, a chance in the world of getting through any Congress. And um, 
but it's just uh, it's it's so cynical and it's it's just very discouraging. Quite honestly, I, I I try to tune it out as much as I can. I'm telling you that the season prior, you know, to who's going to be the nominee, it gets pretty pretty crazy and yeah. pretty depressing when you look at all the different you know speakers and nonsense uh, that they tend to speak. Let's uh, switch gears and talk about uh, Rystad Energy reported this past week about the flaring going on, flaring gas in the Permian Basin, and that it had reached an all-time peak during the first three months of this year. So what I want to talk about is what's happening out there and um, you know, what, is, what kind of problems will this present for the oil and gas industry? Well, it's a big problem, and uh, the reason it's happening is uh, – Again, because we have a shortage of pipeline capacity to bring the natural gas out of the Permian Basin to the Gulf Coast for processing and export uh, use here in the United States and various, uh, you know, home heating and, and other uses that we use it here. Um, and the pipelines take a while to get built. By the end of the year, you know, we're going to have plenty of pipeline capacity and uh this problem will uh, rapidly dissipate. But while it's happening, it's a major black eye from a pub public relations standpoint uh, to the oil and gas industry. Uh, it's a shame it, it happens this way. And it's a shame that some companies, frankly, uh, abuse their, their privilege of being able to, to flare this gas. They uh, continue to uh, seek extensions on the ability to flare gas even after they have pipeline hookups available just because it's expensive to hook some of their wells up to pipelines. And and at the end of the day, it's one of the biggest problems this industry has from a public perception standpoint um, that just in every boom area, regardless of where it happens in the country, we have this issue. And there never seems to be much real progress made by the industry and really doing things necessary to resolve it before it becomes a major black eye. And so right. here we are just uh, going through the same thing in the Permian. We went through in the Eagle Ford, the Bakken and the Marcellus and um, on and on and on. So I, I don't, it's sad. I love this industry. I just wish um, it could get together and really uh, take necessary steps to stop this from happening every place it it goes into a boom. One of the things that um, I really enjoy doing, uh, you help us as well, is energy minutes that are being submitted out to a lot of the radio shows um, that we're on and even uh, shows of stations that are not, uh, that don't carry our program, but they're interested in what we call our energy minutes. They're one minute of energy that's happening for the day that you can take uh, and, and look at it for the day, what's happening in energy. Uh, in it, we're consistently talking about the price of oil, whether it's you, myself, or Commissioner Ryan Sitton with the Texas Railroad Commission. Um, oil prices, uh, you know, to say that oil prices are falling again, and they're below uh, 52 briefly this week. They went below 52 briefly this week. So is demand really falling off that much that is causing this, or maybe there are other factors at play here? T tell me a little bit about what you think. Well, there seems to be a prevailing thought that demand is falling off. I don't really think we have any real demonstrable proof of that other than we've had some significant inventory builds uh, over the past month or so. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of seasonal factors at play in, in these inventories, uh, crude oil storage inventories going up and down at various times of the year. 
So until you have three or four months uh, that establishes a trend, I don't think you can really even say that that's a real significant thing. But the market sees these inventory builds and goes into a panic. They see the inventories building. They see the trade uh, dispute with China escalating. They see the president now talking about putting tariffs on Mexico because of the immigration crisis at the border and the drug crisis at the border. Um, and so all these things happening at once has a, it's more of a uh, emotional impact uh, on the markets than it is a real numbers impact. And uh, so I don't really think demand is, is slackening off at all. I, you know, China is still importing uh, millions of barrels of oil every day, and so is India, and so is the United States. And uh, the demand for, for crude oils is actually remaining pretty strong, but it's just this middle perception in the, in the market uh, when they see see these kinds of headline news popping up that causes the price to drop. Hopefully, you know, uh, the news cycle will change uh, here soon and, and uh, the markets will calm down a little bit. But boy, right now we've had an $11 drop in the price of crude oil in just three weeks, and that's that's a big deal to these companies right. that are operating on small margins. Right. Well, you know, these other factors, I, I asked you about it, they're at play. Um, is there um, a source uh, that, that the energy industry or the media uses that, you know, where we are with demand that kind of balances or unbalances the weekly brief of energy? And where does everybody collect the data from and how valid is it? Well, I mean, you know, there are various sources of the data. Uh, API puts out a weekly inventory storage report, and so does the uh, Energy Information Administration here in the United States. And that's that's really the main source of all this data is the EIA. Um, and, uh, you know, they're really good, and their numbers are what they are, uh, but they're not always, frankly, you know, they have to go back and revise their numbers uh, pretty much every month. And, and so it's... It's, and this is not to discredit no, them. This it, is, you know, you can only go by what you're being told in other countries or the countries that are, you know, in OPEC. Right. And, and they're not always accurate as well. So, right. um, so sometimes these things are off. And then, of course, it causes um, a scenario like what we're seeing, correct, where energy can go up or down on the prices or, you know, crude oil. And, and uh, those factors lead to and link back to some of the reasons why it shifts dramatically from time to time. Yeah, and it's, it's it's very similar to the stock market too. You know, the stock market's the same way. It's uh, as much it goes up and down as much based on emotion as it does on reality. So, until you have a trend that lasts more than a couple of weeks, you know, into several months, you don't really know if it's a trend. <laughs> so it's all emotional in the short term. Makes perfect sense. And David, thanks for coming this week and joining us and talking to us about energy. And I look forward to hearing some more of your energy minutes this week on the radio.